0: I, I've never gotten such pushback for anything and I mean I cover the Balkans so I kind of was <laughs> I expected <laughs> like uh, I didn't ex- ever expect it to be worse than I've gotten here uh, you know it was it was shocking um, you know it was 10 days of just you know NAFO trolls and like you know CIA clandestine service guys tell you know basically to be like, <laughs> like very cryptic kind of like disturbing messages or um about, he deleted afterwards it's good you got the screenshot I yeah I mean it's the best compliment I could ever get he said um, I, I I tweeted uh, this is my first piece for the new Statesman and, and this CIA clandestine services guy or former uh, with a quarter of a million followers said it should be your last right I imagined him saying it in that <laughs> voice <laughs> it's not really what he' was saying.
1: everyone. Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of The End of History. My name is Alex Hokely. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil, as usual. And George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe uh, are in the UK. And Lily Lynch. Hello. Uh, Lily Lynch joins us once again, uh, calling us from Belgrade, I assume.
0: That's right. I'm in Belgrade, Serbia.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Um, So we're going to be talking about Well, about NATO today. I know everyone, we're recording this on Friday, the 20th of October, and everyone, of course, is Thinking about Israel and Palestine, um, but the world goes on. NATO doesn't sleep, unfortunately, and uh, and we have lots to catch up on. I think Lily's been very busy um, writing in the New Statesman, in the New Left Review about uh, about NATO, about Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO. Um, the whole in unheard take. as
2: well. You've been a powerhouse since yeah. we since we last saw you, Lily. You've been writing um, so much. And on not only on NATO, I mean, we hope to talk a bit more about some of the other, um, some of the other pieces that you've uh, mentioned recently or talked about uh, regarding kind of geopolitics and politics in Eastern Europe and Europe more broadly. Um, and it seems like the right time. Also, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it seems to be the general kind of consensus and the feeling with the outbreak of the Israel Gaza war that. There's no getting away from the fact that we're seeing a kind of uh, some kind of reorganization of international order in which Western power is being significantly challenged or diminished. And so I think it's fair to say the Hamas-Israel war is only um, the most recent iteration of this broad kind of restructuring. So we'll be talking around that, I guess, in all the kind of in the various um articles that you've written that we want to um discuss with you
1: yeah.
0: sure anything yeah. you'd like
1: and, and and not to sound too much like the uh, the venmo president but um you know there's still a war going on in ukraine as, as zelensky has been very eager to remind everyone over the past 12 days um actually 13 days now it is i think by my count so um there, that's still going on um and there's plenty to talk about there um But to to get started, I guess, um, maybe talk about uh, one of your, well, several sidecar pieces that you've written in the New Left Review um, blog called Sidecar um, about Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO and the end of Nordic neutrality. Um, So what's the state of play, I guess, with NATO expansion in the north?
0: Um, Yes, so I'm assuming that everybody uh, listening knows that Sweden and Finland, uh, shortly after Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine or full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, uh, abandoned their kind of very long-standing neutrality policies and applied to join NATO. Um, and this transpired in, in a kind of atmosphere of like a wartime kind of hysteria. Um, and, you know, critics of NATO enlargement in those countries say that the there was a kind of a shock doctrine approach taken by um the governments um uh, meaning that you know this decision was undertaken uh without consult- consulting the public um so for in, in Sweden this is kind of unprecedented because uh Sweden has had a referendum on the euro it had a referendum on joining the european union so it was kind of odd that they didn't have uh, a referendum on joining nato although by all accounts um, nato membership is relatively popular in both Finland and Sweden. Um, so uh, both countries applied to join uh, join NATO. And very quickly, however, their uh, Euro-Atlantic dreams were kind of uh, shot down because uh, Erdogan decided to erect a barrier uh, saying that Sweden, particularly for Sweden, Finland would ultimately joined in spring. Uh, but he really was... Uh, quite angry with Sweden's uh, supposed, you know, um, friendliness with the Kurds, so to speak. He called uh, Sweden an incubator for Swedish uh, for Kurdish terror because Sweden has been has um, had a lot of Kurds um, living there uh, who faced some kind of repression in Turkey, and so he basically has been using this as a bargaining chip, his veto veto power. So to enlarge NATO, you need unanimous vote. Uh, So he's basically dangling this over the heads of the Swedes and and the entire uh, alliance saying, you know, we need need to extradite these Kurdish terrorists uh, and you need to say, I don't know, um, do what I say or else I'm going to continuously prevent Sweden from joining NATO. So that's actually where it stands right now. Um, And uh, so Finland joined and Sweden is still out. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that brings us up to date.
2: It couldn't happen to nicer, to nicer guys. Um, (laughs) could you give us maybe a, um, could you give us maybe a feel for the kind of the, the temper of the debate in Sweden and Finland? Um, you know, I mean, you say it's relatively popular and I've seen the opinion polls kind of um that you've cited in your pieces and also kind of more widely on social media I've seen opinion polls about this matter. But I'm curious, I suppose, you know, is it like Swedes and Finns are genuinely worried that Russian tanks are going to kind of um be coming over the border, Russian paratroopers landing in the Arctic Circle? You know, kind of what's the what's the sense of the the public mood? in the context of these debates, do you think?
0: I think that uh, the, the public kind of discussion is kind of hinged on this notion of solidarity a bit. Um, I, I know that there's kind of been like a longstanding sigh off about, I would call it that, uh, about, um, uh, you know, Soviet and then Russian submarines in the Stockholm archipelago. But I think that the debate has mostly just been about uh, showing a kind of unanimous, uh, Western unity in the face of sort of Russian aggression and even has this sort of civilizational flavor where it's, you know, are we joining the West? You know, that's the name of the article that I wrote. Um, and you see this, uh, part of the debate happening a bit in Sweden, uh, where you see people saying things that you would normally just, I would associate with the Balkans, people saying things like we're going to become a normal, Western country, if we join NATO, that's um, incredible. Yeah, yeah. You you imagine Sweden kind of? I don't know how much more <laughs>
1: I Western let, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, who's more Western? Like, what's the most Western Western country there is? Then, because I think it's you know, if Sweden's not not. It was already out. You know, like who's who's in? It's too normal. It's you know,
3: it, it should become <laughs> a bit more interestingly non-Western.
1: But yeah, that's that's very
3: surprising. I mean, what is this? Partly like NATO's good branding I mean this um, this piece that you wrote in Unheard about how NATO essentially well this isn't the terms that you used but like rebranded around kind of this idea of being a progressive peace alliance I mean is this has this really hit home with the Swedes and the Finns are they sort of you know looking looking over and seeing Angelina Jolie and thinking yeah this is the this is a club we want to be a part of
0: I mean I think so I think it is um it it has kind of done a take, taken all the alliances really tried to reband itself as something kind of uh, um, that's ubiquitous in, in kind of progressive circles. It's kind of taken over a lot of like Hmm. uh, peace organizations and feminist organizations that previously would have been very sort of anti-militarism. And now have adopted this sort of like muscular hawkish pro-NATO uh, vibe to kind of like stare down strong men and autocracies. That's kind of my, uh, my, my take on it. Um, I do think that they, that, uh, they've really tried to, uh, present themselves as kind of this modernizing, uh, cutting edge, um, alliance. And you do see, uh, in, in Europe, this sort of like the Atlanticist kind of, takeover of a lot of, like, NGOs, um, hmm. institutions, um, uh, even, yeah, like, it, it, it's, it's happened, it, it's been really ramping up the, in the last couple of years since the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but I've been having this discussion with a lot of people who spend time in Brussels, and they say that it's just, there's been this kind of, just Atlanticist, like, penetration of, like, all, even kind of areas where you wouldn't even imagine that it would be necessary um, very American American vassalization of Europe, basically.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I'm I wondering about, you know, this idea of being modern, of being Western, there's obviously a lot of cultural symbolism that goes into this and it's used to disguise the politics of what's actually going on. Um, it's a bit like the, with the EU debate. I mean, with Britain, it's like, oh, we want to be European. We want to signal that we're European. And it's like, well, you know, Britain's still going to be there in the North Atlantic. It's not going anywhere else. It's, definitely part of europe um and the same thing kind of happens with with NA- like these discussions about nato accession and i wonder how yeah they normally
2: like- i mean normally with eastern european countries right i mean it really is remarkable that it would happen with um with sweden and finland right um two social democratic countries but also you know in the aftermath of the defeat in afghanistan as well so, you know, it's not even five years since you have kind of a debacle, a debacle in terms of a military, long-running military operation, and then you have countries actually piling in. Was there any, I mean, were you aware of any discussion of the of Afghanistan in
0: the debates in Sweden and Finland? That's a really good question. Um, I didn't, I can't recall um, that I saw that uh, figuring in, but I'm sure. Sh- then it is really it would be interesting to go back and look, um, for sure. There is also, I mean, there is a Balkan
2: connection. Um, and I think this may be kind of some of the deeper roots of for Sweden at least, if not for Finland, because Sweden did participate in UN peacekeeping um in in Bosnia. And Bosn, you know, and there essentially the UN kind of peacekeepers were more or less um Became effectively a de facto kind of arm of NATO as NATO got more deeply embroiled in the conflict, running up to the um, bombing campaign of the of mid of the mid nineteen nineties in Bosnia. So I suppose I mean there is kind of the so the Swedish the Swedes kind of deployed uh, alongside NATO if not under direct NATO control. So and I guess that goes to the question of I mean that kind of goes to the question of neutrality as well. Um, And the kind of the self-conception of of these countries, because both Sweden and Finland saw themselves as neutral peacekeepers in the Cold War. And like you were saying, the kind of the expansion of Atlanticism to become so ideologically predominant and overwhelming that it's kind of annexed so much kind of political space around it that there is no not even a space for kind of neutrality in that. And so it's easy, I suppose, or easier at least for countries like Finland and Sweden to flip their identity into simply being kind of absorbed into Atlanticism when there is no clear sense of what political neutrality might mean.
1: Well, just to on something onto that, I mean, even even Switzerland as well, you know, kind of, a, a, kind of shifted away from its neutrality. And, it, you know, I, for Sweden and Finland, it's obviously part... Oh, part of their national identity, I think, is you, you know you noted one of the pieces you wrote, Lily. Um, Sweden probably more so than Finland, um, but with Switzerland, it runs even deeper. And with Switzerland, it's not like Switzerland had Switzerland's abandoned its neutrality, but it kind of started, you know, um, taking actions against Russians, freezing Russian oligarch assets, um, closing airspace to Russian airlines, um, imposing visas, etc. So various things, the anti-Russian moves, which um, well, they, are voted, not they voted
2: with, to join the. They voted to join the UN as well, which I think right. is an important part of that shift.
1: Yeah. So it's like, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how this, yeah, how this has been justified kind of domestically, um, in, in particular, I guess, particularly in Sweden, even more than Finland, um, in terms of, you know, this discourse of like modernization versus giving up traditions, um, you know, and that, you know, in the, in this case, the tradition is a more progressive stance than the, than the new modern thing.
0: Yeah, this is a really good point because, um, you know, Sweden, as as you have hinted at, or you guys mentioned Sweden had this sort of Cold War foreign policy that was, a, it was the moral superpower, you know, on, with this figure of Olaf Palma as a sort of like, um, you know, really like demonstrating like a lot of solidarity, you know, demonstrating solidarity with like anti-colonial movements and then, you know, really protesting the Vietnam War and actually like uh, degra- uh, degrading relations with the United States over over the Vietnam War, um, uh, so yeah, you it's this kind of shift in sort of what it means to you know, show solidarity for, especially, I think, the center left. And I think it's important that this was like, these were social democratic countries and parties in power, governments in power when NATO um, membership was, um, when, it, when they applied for NATO membership. Um, I think that there's just, it, it kind of follows to me, the sort of neoliberalization of the social democratic parties. It's kind of comes in, there's a, there's a shift towards Atlanticism and also a hollowing out of the sort of like what, you know welfare state what, what social democracy actually meant uh and so I, th- I think these two things happen at the same time this um this kind of uh and i know that um you know atlantis is, the united states kind of desperate for the sort of like um you know moral capital of like the scandinavian countries or the nordic countries uh was eager to kind of you know Cannibalize that in a way, and like you know, take what it wanted from that. Maybe the feminism and the sort of like skin suit of social democracy, maybe, and like <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a great <laughs> phrase. It's
1: a good phrase, yeah. <laughs> but,
0: but like hollowed out, isn't You know, like there's a, a Sweden's um, uh, welfare state is now gone. It's been completely unravelled, and inequality is very dramatic there. As um, it's, it's risen, I think faster. Or more dramatically than in any of the OECD countries, so I think I think there has been a sort of um, uh, I don't I don't know exactly how the the US has managed it, but it, this this started before the invasion of Ukraine. There has been this sort of um, uh, this general sort of move towards like um, trying to to bring the Nordic countries into the euro Atlantic space and sort of eliminate neutrality as an option. And I think that's part of the sort of polarized moment we live in, too. I just how, wanted to
1: give a con- mention to... Sorry, just briefly, because I, I think this is this is um, you know remarkable. In a piece from earlier this year about, about Switzerland's neutrality, I know we're not discussing Switzerland, and I don't want people to be like, "Oh well, here's Alex talking about Switzerland again." <laughs> I don't do that. Yeah, no, he's always uh, talking about Switzerland <laughs> all the time. You're just you having can episodes your...
2: on Switzerland all the time on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you, you can, can make you think you It's fine. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, this this from the the Washington Post. In the face of a war that has remade Europe, embracing Western values means get, getting off the fence in tangible ways and it's like yeah right so um you know not like the second world war which is a localized conflict without any great meaning to it without any polarization over different forms of life represented by the warring sides you know this is a real civilizational conflict which is remaking europe um not like that thing that happened in the in the 40s that's that was that's small that's <laughs> you yeah, know you can
3: sit you can sit that one out but this one you've got to. this
1: one th- this is the moment so there's like yeah There's so much like, why now, you know, kind of questions all along the way, you know, Phil's question about post-Afghanistan defeat as well. Why now, you know?
0: It's interesting. I I just thought of something else, which was, um, you know, during the Cold War, there existed this non-aligned movement, uh, which... um, you know, it was comprised of countries, Africa, Asia, you know, countries emerging from colonization, basically. And at the time during the Cold War, you know, the U.S. sort of used it uh, because it was the CIA kind of approved of it uh, in a way because it it was a progressive bloc that was not Soviet because the non-aligned movement was, you know, a block free institution grouping of countries that existed between it was neither nato or soviet and now you know you I, you cannot imagine that existing today and or, or are um uh or and certainly not um supported by the united states you know you, you can imagine that they would not they don't tolerate any form of neutrality i mean i live in serbia which is a country that is officially military n- militarily neutral and surrounded now by on all sides except for one uh well okay two um by nato countries um, <laughs> by nato member states um but uh, it, it is under tremendous pressure to to sort of line up behind sort of NATO policies and sanction Russia. And there there had even been calls to sanction Serbia for refusing to sanction Russia. So, um, but it's funny that during the Cold War, um, you know, Belgrade was sort of the capital of the non-aligned movement. And this is where the first summit was held. And again, this was seen as something that uh, was like at a minimum tolerated and maybe even supported by the United States neutrality then because it meant, you know, you know an alternative to the soviet bloc
2: how how conscious do you think the effort is to eliminate neutrality as a political option as a kind of lingering political option is the is the logic that it's simply kind of um you know like a kind of atlantis steamroller that's simply blundering forward and kind of squashing everything in its path ideologically at least politically Or is it that they have deliberately sought to exacerbate the polarization and isolate Russia further by absorbing new members? How do you read it?
0: I think it's both of those things. I really do. Um, I think it's opportunistic. Um, I think it's a result of a very kind of hawkish type of person who took control of this sort of conversation around Eastern Europe in particular and sort of enlargement um you know there were decisions that were made about uh, and and certain kinds of you know kind of cold warriors who really took over and wanted like maximalist uh or wanted to expand as far as possible and had a real belligerent attitude towards Russia um and uh, heeded no warnings about you know the, the potential for NATO enlargement to uh, have some kind of a reaction in Russia not blaming uh you know that um, on, on on the war. I'm not saying that Russia's not not um, doesn't have uh, responsibility, but yeah, a, a certain kind of person took over, and I do think that this is like they saw it as an opportunity to just ram through, to sew up the southern flank here, to to get the Nordics in, um, and to to really just uh, exploit this this uh, opportunity uh, of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, And probably even going back to 2014, of course, in 2014, um, after the annexation of Crimea and the the subsequent years, you had the enlargement of uh, uh, admitting Montenegro and uh, and North Macedonia after a very difficult process um, that was very undemocratic, actually. But anyway, uh, so I do think a a certain kind of um, a certain kind of argument won out. Um, and yeah, yeah, but I think it's both of the things you mentioned.
1: I'm still calling them Macedonia, incidentally. I'm not. I'm not doing this North Maced. Sorry, Greeks. But
0: <laughs> no, you really want to
2: embroil us in uh, in that <laughs> conflict as well, Alex? To I think if Alex, you just piss every, if you piss everyone off. They Macedonia.
1: can't. They can't accuse you of partiality. You know, I mean, it's a different form of neutrality. It's like the it's like the the Waluigi <laughs> of neutrality, where you know you just offend everyone and then and then and then you're fine. No. Good
3: and timely Alex. reference with the new Mario game coming out today. So <laughs> I'm not aware. Being, it, you must have seen adverts for it like I have. So mm. shout out to Waluigi. Yeah. I
2: wanted to ask. So, one thing I wanted to. Um, uh, one thing I really appreciated was in the pieces, Lily, was the breakdown in terms of the various um, voting blocks and constituencies for and against within those countries um, as regards joining. And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the. You know what the overall kind of uh, sense was of people who supported and people who opposed politically. Um, sure. How far it, you mentioned this kind of social democrats, but also the others on the political spectrum.
0: Uh, yeah, sure. There's a political spectrum question, but there's also an age divide, which was really interesting to me when I saw that uh, older, wealthier people are overwhelmingly pro-NATO. Uh, younger people uh, who earned less tended to be anti-NATO. And um, one thing that I struck me in seeing that was that um, you know these older people really got to enjoy the fruits of social democracy and like peace, you know, that, that, that neutrality brought them, and then they are willing to just kind of you know throw it all away. And like um, it's really, really kind of a it's like the boomer story all over the world. I was going to say yeah, uh, so it's
2: a boomer. Um, NATO is a
0: boomer thing. I think so. Yeah, I really do. Um, uh, but as far as politics are concerned, you know, within the social Democrats, there was a real split uh, between the sort of old school, you know, Palma um, sort of block that's more uh, critical of the US and end of NATO. Um, and this sort of, you know, this, that uh, neoliberal Atlanticist wing. Uh, so there was kind of a split in the social Democrats. And there was, a, it was pretty close to half and half. I think it was maybe 60, 40 or something. Very, very, it's very close to half and half. Um, but a lot of the, but on the other hand, and this is probably as you can expect, um, in both Finland and Sweden, there's a lot of anti-NATO sentiment on the far right, the far right populist parties. Although that is still a fringe sentiment within even within those parties in finland but in particular the far right party is very pro nato but there are a couple of kind of eccentric individuals who are very loud um who are former members of that party the Finns, formerly known as the true Finns, who voted against nato enlargement in finnish parliament and there's also a left-wing party in finland uh where overwhelmingly the left voted for nato membership i think there were four mps Check that, but four left-wing left, went, left uh, party MPs who voted against, um, and there was one left party MP who even I think uh, submitted. Um, uh, re- he wanted to. He he submitted this um, resolution that would have like criminalized um, criticizing NATO and like or, or no, uh, God, it was something like. Um, criminalizing, like uh, doing journalism on behalf of a foreign power or something that like very, like really, really dr- kind of crazy. Um, and so the, le- that just kind of like is, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact details, but it was something like that. Uh, but it really illustrates the kind of state of the left in Finland. Um, and uh, in Sweden, there is a left-wing party. They, they really kind of pushed for a referendum at least. And they were, Um, they did for part of the public conversation um, that was critical of that lack of referendum but uh the and i would say that the conversation yeah in sweden was a bit more um varied but um uh, in finland it was really depicted as a nationalist uh, thing like if you weren't if you were against nato you were against the country's national interests
1: no i mean, like i wonder i mean you know this is particularly in finland's case um, who obviously share a long border with Russia, and um, all very fortified, and um, kids are raised from a young age to be prepared and um, go through um, military training and all the rest of it. So there's obviously a consciousness of, of kind of the Russian threat from, um, and it's been that way for a long time. But at the same time, you know, another one of these why now questions is the invasion of Ukraine within a couple of months, and certainly by by now, by this stage, or even by the beginning of this year, it's pretty evident that. Russia wouldn't have the capability to you know, to do what all the kind of pro-NATO propaganda said, which is, you know, kind of you're next, you know, you Baltics are next, you're Finland you're next, like, you know, Russia, you know, it's quite evidently like on display. So it the invasion of Ukraine kind of proves the opposite to 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 that which NATO propagandists want to show, I think.
0: Yeah, I t- yeah, I totally agree. Um and it was again um seen, I think, as a real opportunity by people who would wanted this to happen for a very long time.
2: One thing that strikes me is the, the kind of the flip side of these debates about the new kind of the neutrals, um, being absorbed into Euro-Atlanticism is Ukraine's, you know, I mean, in a way you could see the whole conflict is over whether or not Ukraine would be neutral. Um, because this was, you know, the big question was Ukraine's kind of accession into NATO and the EU. And not only, I mean, you know, I mean, sometimes it's understood purely in terms of kind of Russian geopolitics and Ukraine is the Russian sphere of influence, but that it also put tremendous stress Internally in the Ukraine itself, given kind of uh, political, the political divisions between East and Western Ukraine um, that had led up right up to the 2014 putsch, um, and also longs, you know, as well as the kind of the war that came afterwards, um, and I suppose discontent and suspicion of central government in Kiev coming from the East. so. In a way, I mean, you could, you know, I mean, it's stretching it perhaps, but not too much, I think, at least if you're talking in terms of um, the constitutional status of countries in the international order, you could see it as a conflict over neutrality um, and Ukraine status. And that seems to me, you know, I mean, that seems to me to be part of it because I can't see any way for Ukraine to recover its territorial integrity and its sovereignty um, without a commitment to neutrality that seems to me like it would be. It was originally kind of part of the various peace settlements in the Minsk frameworks There was an offer. It seems to me to be um, a geo, you know, the kind of the geopolitical corollary of Ukrainian independence, given just where Ukraine is positioned geographically, but also the internal kind of structure of Ukrainian society. Um And that option is being eliminated more widely in Europe, you know, so not only with the accession of the Nordic states, um, but also in Ireland. I mean, you know, there was kind of, there's been kind of a flare up of concern in Ireland that Ireland is kind of being sucked into the Euro-Atlantis vortex as well. Um, And the president, you know, famously kind of broke almost, was seen to break neutrality by suggesting that it would be against Ireland's interest to be sucked into NATO any further. So... I mean, that seems to me to be part of the conflict as well—is eliminating neutrality in this context.
0: Yes, absolutely. And the you—you you just hear instead people parrot this line: um, "Countries have the right to choose their own security arrangements." And this is always used. I'm always asking myself um, because there are in many of these countries, including Ukraine. You know, neutrality was a very popular position, and kind of like a majority supported it. Um, until you know, probably the war changed sentiments obviously. But um, uh, when 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 I hear people say this, when I hear Atlanticists say countries have the right to choose their own security arrangements, I mean, I'm wondering who's speaking on behalf of the country, and it's always, of course, the kind of uh, most um, pro atlanticist party that they can that they're you know that, that we, we point to in a foreign country that Washington likes.
2: Yeah, and I mean the another aspect of that also. I mean, it was kind of similar to the debate about NATO expansion in Eastern Europe. It was always cast as well. You're denying the agency. You're denying the agency of the Poles, of the Baltic states, or Hungary, or you know whoever it might be, as if um, you know, as if there was no agency on the other side, or as if uh, you know, kind of Estonia held the gun to the head of the U.S. and demanded that they be let in, or else something like that, um, as if NATO is driven by the concerns of small powers outside of its boundaries, you know. So that always seemed to me kind of um, deep, kind of deeply disingenuous in terms of the framing of NATO expansion.
0: Very, very. And I, I, I love the agency point because it only ever works if it's countries who have a very, um, you know, Euro-Atlantic or, or orientation or the person whose agency we're talking about wants to be, with, um, you know, aligned with the U S you know, we don't have agency is never, um, the other way, as you said, you know, what about the agency of people who want to remain neutral? You know, we don't respect that.
2: So how do you, I mean, thinking then about it, so what is the future for neutrality? It's certainly the space for it has shrunk, but do you think, do you think there is kind of, would you argue that we need more neutrality in world politics and could you identify off the basis of, you know, the stuff you, the writing you've been doing and so on, could you identify any way to kind of expand the space for neutrality in world politics and in Europe in
0: particular? Uh, um, to both of your questions, you know, I really don't, I think the prospects for neutrality are very poor. I mean, we live in a very like deeply polarized, uh, world. It's like, you know, the, the very common point, um, and there's no real space for diplomacy or for for a middle ground i mean we um, just with the the sort of extreme nature of the discussion around ukraine for example you know if you even so much as hint at the idea of the word if you if you say the word peace it's now synonymous with supporting genocide that that's how the discussion has gone so that's how that's in that kind of you know, I don't know uh, if, if those are the kind of terms of the debate or if that's how the, that's, those are the contours of the debate. Like, I don't see a lot of future for neutrality, because if you're supporting genocide, if you're suggesting that maybe at some point in the near future negotiations might be prudent, then I don't I don't see how you can even hold onto any kind of neutral space. And I think that's a real loss for the world because non-alignment and neutrality during the Cold War, um, you know, were extremely uh, moral, I think, positions, they, they did a lot of great work on, um, uh, disarmament and, 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 um, you know, uh, they are ca- provided like a nice counterweight to the sort of like escalating kind of, um, Cold war rhetoric. And I think that they could potentially be a really powerful force. And you saw, you know, when, um, a lot of countries in, in the old non-aligned States, you know, in the so-called uh, global South, let's say, um, where they refuse to sanction Russia. And they, we, we kind of, uh, in the United States, we discovered the rest of the world exists, and they don't think exactly the way we do, and they don't vote the UN exactly the way we do, uh, and they're not prepared to make europe's problems their biggest problem uh you know there was this talk of like okay maybe there's going to be a, re- a resurrected sort of non-aligned movement or something like that some kind of body that like brings together countries that are want to remain neutral but i don't see any prospect for the global multilateral institution and i think that you know the future is like kind of regionalist regional blocks you know like um smaller alliances uh um, I, but I don't think that there's there there's a real good future uh, for neutrality at this point in time. Uh, just, yeah. I mean,
1: like a, a weird thing, you know, I mean, obviously if you're looking at just purely in the kind of European context, you've got NATO on one side, you've got Russia on the other side, and then anyone supposedly, you know, wanting to be neutral between those two um, gets effectively cajoled or called, you know, particularly by NATO, you know, it's basically saying, no, you're siding with Russia by default. But one of the interesting things about multipolarity, of course, it's, you know, the two biggest players um, on the chess board are the US and um, and China. But there's other players, right? Um, there's Russia, there's uh, India to a certain extent, um, Brazil, South Africa, know, and a couple of others, is, you know, who get lumped in. that how chess works? Huh? That you have
3: multiple players?
1: Uh, we're leaving the chess thing behind. That was one. just a, okay. yeah. We're not we're Very that confusing. This is Brazilian anyway. chess. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so... You've obviously got all these pieces. And in theory, you know, the fact that you might be temporarily aligned with China, you know, you might have more economic business with China, but you might be, um, but you also buy Russian fertilizer, but you're, you know, you sometimes cooperate with US on certain things, but you're blah, 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 right. You know, you have various different kind of relationships and they, those shift and the shift according to what government comes into power. Um, that would be not necessarily neutrality, but it wouldn't be um, the, the idea that that should somehow... Default into um, you know full alignment with the Western bloc, the Euro Atlantic bloc, or meaning you're with China. You know that's it's kind of uh, it's particularly absurd, I think, in, in in today's times because it's like well, it's actually quite a fluctuating mm-hmm. um, fluctuating kind of scenario with various different kind of poles. You know that's kind of the idea of multipolarity, clues in the name. Um, and and so I don't know how how you kind of conceive of neutrality in that scenario. Right. I mean, if you're,
3: if, if yeah, but if the status quo is, you know, genocide or something which is, is, you know, portrayed as so terrible, then there has to be, then, you know, I think that's part of it. That's basically what I interpreted you to be saying, Lily, is like, if, if the, the, the terms of neutrality are like set out where you have to, you have to pick a side or your the default position is endorsing the status quo. If you can make the status quo be, you know, genocide, then that, (laughs) massively shrinks the yeah massively shrinks the possibilities morally that you that you would have um if you are indeed acting morally rather than through a different kind of metric to to take a neutral position because you can't let this go on possibly you know you can't possibly allow this kind of whatever's going on to just continue
1: Uh, you know what we need we need like a we need a gunter fellinger you know the the the, the pro NATO troll um, who goes around threatening countries with dissolution, dismemberment, balkanization, etc. If they don't toe the NATO line, we need a Gunter Fellinger of of the BRICS. Um, I'm not proposing that I should be this person, but w- w- there should be a person like this um, who just goes around and and. Uh,
2: I think it's a great idea and Alex. tries to and get you, people together
1: and just tries you to so like. Volunteering
2: for it is such a great idea.
1: I might I might reform Yugoslavia, right? I to mean, be like, right, okay. Kind of Serbs, Croats, <laughs> Bosnians—all of you guys get back together. Um, you know, if, if you play, if you if you want to declare neutrality, so the the the, the Fellinger game is basically either you join NATO or I'm splitting you apart. And I'm saying, either you join, if you join neutrality, the bonus is you get put together into a bigger into a bigger block. So you know, you might get a whole Andean nation like joined up all together. Uh, whatever you know, there's all all these possibilities for 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 multinational unity.
3: You should start a GoFundMe and put the link in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> to do yeah, this. Yeah, it's a
2: great idea. A Gunter Feilinger of neutrality or multipolarity. There you yeah, go.
1: Yeah. No,
2: anyway, it's not a. It's actually. It is an interesting idea. I mean, I'm. You know, my uh, I've got a. I've got a deeper kind of. Well, deeper interest isn't quite right, but a kind of a more. I suppose. Um, Direct interest, political interest in the question, because it seems to me it was a glorious, it still is, in fact, I think a glorious opportunity for Brexit Britain to, car or Brexit presented the opportunity for an entirely new kind of foreign policy for Britain. And the idea of being a kind of a nuclear armed Switzerland of the North Atlantic was, uh, seems, you know, kind of is... Eminently appealing, I think, and can be sold, you know, in principle at least. I mean, I'm not saying it's an easy sell, but I'm saying at least, you know, it could be sold. But obviously, it's harder as neutrality kind of shrivels up in Europe and in the world, you know, it's a harder sell. Um, But again, it's counterintuitive. I mean, this is what Alex was getting at, because in a world, you know, in a multipolar world, there should be more space for neutrality. And that seems to be the pattern of, um, you know, the wave of coups in Africa, right? It's partly they're buckling these governments that are completely integrated into western structures through aid or military support or political support or whatever it is and they're buckling under the strain of these new geopolitical rivalries and they're you know and then you get this kind of um they're trying to kind of carve back some autonomy and it carve out some political space to gain more opportunity i suppose you know so um It's it's odd because you know, like you say, neutrality is kind of shriveling away at the same time as there seems to be more um, political opportunity to exploit it. Absolutely.
1: So um maybe wanted to move on to um something I guess you could call digital nationalism. Uh, Lily, you wrote this piece on um something which is really bizarre um about I mean not the not what you wrote is bizarre but um the the subject the subject matter is is kind of um surprising where uh the Ukraine has launched an app um it's trying to sell itself as being um very digitally connected. It's part of a wider trend for countries to um, boast about their digital connectiveness, uh, having their, having the fastest internet in the region or in the world. Um, and there's uh, an even kind of through digitalization, particularly of, of, of government services of state services that it might decrease um, corruption. And so there's like a lot of kind of tech um, enthusiasm, tech optimism, which kind of gets tacked onto this. Um, but also it, it's quite naff by by the way that you describe it a little bit kind of old fashioned a bit 90s but a bit 90s so it's meant you mean, to be you know a new digital do you know what naff
2: is Lily? do you know what naff is yeah, does I, alex I, need to explain slang. Was...
0: some british yeah, yeah. word it's
2: old it's it's, it's slang from mid 2000s maybe Alex you got to explain it
1: no, I don't think I think it's much older than that um, and, and anyway but it, it, I was actually looking for a more um, you know international English equivalent of this um, but I, I, I couldn't think I, I've said it on the podcast before and then I realized that people don't know what that it's just ca- kind of corny I guess yeah
2: know? corny is the word kind of cheesy kind of corny cringe. Yeah.
0: cringe okay, okay.
1: cringe would be the more Gen Z uh, millennial younger millennial Gen Z term to use but yeah
0: um some
1: really some really cringe pro-tech propaganda
0: yeah i mean this the app is called dia uh and it's there it's being promoted as like it actually means the state and i in ukrainian um and uh it's it's they're promoting it as a state in a smartphone so basically like you download this app and you can like um get your uh, COVID vaccine certificate, and your ba- you can like register the fact that you like had a baby, and your uh, your driver's license is in there. Uh, you, um, but you can also do a host of very weird things, like you can um, you you can report Russians for war crimes. I so mean, just you know, it, that's like an interesting thing. But they're also kind of like a, they're like very. Or video games you can play. Um, uh, you can report to Russians for collabor or pro Russian neighbors for collaboration with, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very catch all kind of. Kind of app, um, this kind of tech solutionist, you know, Silicon Valley ideology. Um, And I I watched the rollout. This is actually just very, very important to mention that the the, this app's development was funded in large part by USAID, Uh, so the U.S. government's uh, aid agency, development aid agency. And so this,
1: this, just a question on, on on the funding. I mean, is that basically the U.S. just routing money to its own Silicon Valley companies? I mean, that's just a, a kind of I mean, slightly disguised subsidy or.
0: That's an interesting question. Actually, I mean, I think it's a Ukrainian, like co- there are Ukrainian companies and like tech, like startups that have like designed the app. If, if that's what you're asking. Um, but like mm-hmm. USAID funds, all kinds of like dodgy stuff in Eastern Europe, you know, like don't get me started on that. It's a whole different discussion. Um, (laughs) So basically I was, I was watching the rollout of this USAID uh, event, the rollout, rollout of this app, Padilla, um, where the minister of uh, Ukraine, in addition to rolling out this app, um, created a ministry for like, I don't know, something like it's a ministry for like digital development or something really ridiculous, you know, like they're really going for it. Uh, and this, this, this event was just so it really reminded me of like when we all believed like whatever it was like during the Arab spring that like Twitter was going to overthrow like, you know, dictators in the middle East, you know, really this sort of dated, you know, Obama administration era. uh, Yeah. Tech optimism. Um, And they they had are stuck there. They haven't moved. Uh, And so it was, yeah, it was very, very odd. Um, And they're, but it's, it's you know it's this extension of this idea that Ukraine uh, is you know this tech powerhouse that was like held back by the Soviets and this this is like a rebrand of the country you know basically as the sort of like um, the digital nationalism basically like you know we're we're a. Um, we would have been able to do so much if only we weren't held back by inferior Soviet science. And also, you know, this is us, we're joining the West. It's another kind of joining the West and joining the sort of like this very powerful um, segment of the West, which is obviously like Silicon Valley. And um, yeah, so it's just been very interesting to watch. But of course, like you said, this is kind of a regional trend. It's certainly not new, you know, Estonia as this e-Estonia program, e-voting. Uh, and I know that, you know, all over this region, I mean, like Romania was trying to say that it had the fastest internet for a while. Like, there's it's, it's here in Serbia, there was, like, this SHARE conference that was being, again, funded by USAID, and that SHARE conference was all about, you know, digital privacy and digital kind of security. It, it, but in my opinion, this, had, this all started in, like, uh around 2011, 12. And I think that it was the US doing damage control after the Snowden leaks. And they were like, okay, hey, now we're going to kind of present ourselves as being like pro-privacy. Um, but anyway, but uh, so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of this um, in, in Eastern Europe. But sometimes it just it's kind of like a way to paper over a lot of problems and, and, and present yourself as being sort of distinct from to draw a line between you know, the past and, and and the future, and um, you know, get a lot of money from global Americans.
3: Sounds like it's uh, it's worked to a certain extent. What what's the take up been like of this? I mean, the state and I that is not perhaps to me at least a particularly appealing bit of branding. But I guess having the secret police in your in your pocket or linked to them <laughs> could be useful in certain circumstances. Um, you know, if you if you have a an altercation with your neighbor, you can can resolve that pretty um, efficiently. But yeah, is this is this a kind of, um, has it been popular? Is it going to be- It's very popular. You know, the future? Um, yeah. It is
0: very popular. You can understand too. I mean, it's very useful for refugees. You can, or internally displaced people. So you don't need to, Right. paper around or if maybe your apartment's been you know destroyed and like you've had to leave very quickly and you couldn't get a hold of your stuff like you're 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 not able to access your you know yeah your paper stuff you have the, everything in your phone so it actually makes a lot of sense for Ukraine right now I, so I, I do want to say that you know there is that side of it and that that's that's also important to mention because you know I've of course only mentioned the kind of dystopian side of it but there's this very useful uh part of it which is that it's um you know, this is, this is rolled out, you know, during the war and it has been uh, useful for a lot of people who are. Yeah. Who, who could benefit from having a state in a smartphone.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. You see you, you see your neighbor get have uh, you know, just built an extension on their house. And I'm like, well, it's Kremlin gold that. <laughs> I think up. I yeah. saw a
3: Russian flag in, in, in the extension <laughs> that my neighbor just built. Yeah. I have to destroy the extension, please.
2: I um do you think there's a way in which they kind of uh, I mean I guess this is implicit in what you're saying but I wanted to check uh, that this is kind of um they use these kind of post-Soviet states or uh, old Eastern European um, the ex-communist states as kind of a testing ground for these kind of digital
0: initiatives absolutely Um, precise. Yeah. I I mean, that must be part of it. Absolutely. I I think that, uh, it it just, I have a friend who's an economist here and she says that during the nineties, uh, you know, Eastern Europe was being experimented on with the neoliberal like ideas you could never, you know, you could never use in the West. It was much, so I think the same kind of thing that was happening with the economy, uh, with private, like, you know, kind of this, um, uh, It's happening now. Um, And I I think that actually the stated goal of DIA, of DIA's um, creators and of the USAID, is that this is going to expand. I know that they're going to be rolling out. I think it's definitely in Kosovo is one of the places. Uh, I think Colombia and one other country, I forgot which, but uh, the the goal is that this is going to be a a global product. And and, and I remember Samantha Power, the head of USAID, saying at this event, she said, uh you know ukraine is known as the breadbasket of europe and now it's going to be known for you know this app basically and like known for digitalization the digital digitalization agenda
1: it's Um, not just wheat in chernobyl anymore it's you know apps yeah but yeah i mean there's there's kind of it it worked before
3: or this this kind of model as far as i understand it because the or in, in the sense that the term NGOization was initially applied in in the Balkans. And that's, you could argue, this is something which has, you know, the NGOs have, have kind of come home to the US, the UK from that kind of initial, like, you know, Balkan context and now play a, you could argue pretty important role in American, British, elsewhere politics. So, you know, if you have, if you have this opportunity to test out the technology to kind of, I don't know, to get the, uh, the, the the bugs out of, of the tech and to kind of see what makes people uh, take it up. Why not? It could be coming uh, coming to us sooner rather than later.
2: Presumably, I mean this this uh, I mean this is maybe a stretch in terms of the. Um the actual kind of institutional linkages, but I wonder if there are kind of resonances that speak to a deeper political outlook, but it kind of, it reminds me a bit of the, um, the re there, there was a conference in the UK recently, a very big one Apparently, I mean, at least judging by the reports, it was Tony Blair's conference where he talked to the labor leader Keir Starmer and it was a Tony Blair Institute for global change. And apparently it was the most kind of lavish, you know, um, swanky conference, political conference the UK has seen in a long time because the Blair Institute is tremendously wealthy. Um, But in that, there is a real kind of new drive for extending kind of digital services and as a way of getting around the um, problems of putting out new services or reforming kind of the old institutions of the welfare state. Um, And so I wonder, you know, kind of I can imagine like I imagine there's something similar in this too, right? So it's a way of kind of um, it becomes a kind of uh, a digital, kind of a digital uh, substitute for traditional public services, and maybe even kind of a digital rationalisation for austerity. You don't, mm. you know, like it's like seeing your doctor on the phone rather than actually seeing them face to face, which is the more or less the new model in the UK, right? So. I imagine there's a similar kind of rationale here. You can strip everything back because you've got it on your phone, and at the same time, you're turning citizens into cops, exactly, where they can report on
0: each other. And it's really important to mention exactly what you said that um, that this is a a, basically an excuse to yeah to to um, uh, to like shift public services to this like digital platform and the way that that is presented and kind of sold to the public and to other States, I'm guessing is it, is it el- supposedly eliminates corruption. That's what they're saying, right? That it's, this is an anti-corruption app because as, as Zelensky said, you know, um, a phone or an app doesn't have Godfathers or something like that. He was saying that, you know, there's no, you can't pay a bribe to an app. So, but it's this kind of rhetoric of anti-corruption that's used in Eastern Europe, like very kind of um, selectively. But that's a whole different story. But, but I, you know, the point is, um, this, this, that the fact that this app is being promoted as a sort of like way of eliminating, eliminating public services, like scaling things back, an excuse for austerity, um, and this kind of present, um, promising to eliminate corruption. What the, the worst corruption in Ukraine is not you know, these small time brides, it's like the fact that there's like oligarch, our oligarchs have like a grip on the country. It's, it's, it's these yeah. bigger mm. questions that are not being answered by
3: and, stuff. I know this isn't really the central point, but the idea that apps don't have godfathers, I'm not sure, is that entirely right? I was just sort of thinking of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk as the kind of Don Corleone where you make, you're having a conversation with, with somebody and you go, and you give them a little bit of your data and that's what allows you to have this conversation with their, with their blessing. Um, but I know that's obviously not the way that that you you meant it, but it seems, yeah, it seems like... A, data know, cartels, very, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It seems like, a, I don't know, it's a very kind of convenient um, message, obviously. Like here is the uncorruptible kind of, you know, um, frictionless, you know, completely monitorable, Way of um, of interacting with the state, interacting with each other. So, yeah, you can see why they'd be why they'd be pushing it. But
1: yeah, I still, mean, it, it, yeah. And it's so of a piece with so much anti-corruption politics. I mean, particularly kind of neoliberal anti-corruption politics, which you know, it like a big deal in Eastern Europe. Um, it was a big deal in Brazil, which is why I'm I'm um, got interested in in the subject in the first place. But it's always like, yeah, let's go after the let's go after the little guy, and let's funnel power upwards away from and. Democracy to make sure that um, you know there's no that basically kind of the autonomy of representatives is limited as much as possible, so that they don't do corrupt things, um, and it's left in the hands of of judges and supposedly independent people to um, to adjudicate over 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 matters. And it completely obscures. And I think your piece makes this point, Lily. It completely obscures um, the fact that um, th- that you know the big level corruption um, in terms of the nexus between capital and and the state um, between business and 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 kind of the political system is like it's where it's where it's at um and the other thing like i hadn't um encountered a case of tech being and tech and tech ideology being used so explicitly for this um for these political ends um of the way the tech can obscure that you know like let's just bring in the technology just maybe because you know i'm more familiar with like what's been happening in brazil for the past um decade and uh and and here we didn't have a case of like uh, let's Let's have a like a or a car wash app. Um, that being the the big anti-corruption investigation for those who aren't familiar, I'm not might be a car wash app. I don't know what anyway, let's not get let's not get get onto that. But um, you know, the 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 way the tech is is used there and probably you know promoted by the State Department, you USAID kind of funneling money into this as a way of kind of doing a neoliberal anti-corruption politics. I think that's fascinating.
0: Very interesting, yeah.
1: Phil, um, you were going to ask about your, your favorite subject, which is international relations. Sure it's well, eh, it's not favorite your favorite cause that's Brexit, but your relations. second, your second favorite subject.
2: My second favorite subject. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want to talk about international politics on a politics podcast, such a, <laughs>
1: such a uh, terrible crime. I meant specifically about realist, the realist tradition in, in international yeah. relations.
2: So, um, I wanted to talk to you about this, Lily, in particular, um, your piece in the new Statesman about how, uh, the Ukraine war has been a vindication for, um, realism. So it's this, um, you know, I mean, it's been the centerpiece of, uh, it's been the centerpiece of, um, a particular tradition of political science. Um, and it's usually kind of set up as what was the kind of the dominant tradition in cold war era, political science in the American Academy, at least. Um, and the fact that you have kind of, uh, that realism has been so, um, uh, I suppose, intellectually isolated and has been subject to such moral opprobrium in this context, um, tells us important things about the Ukraine war, I think. But, um I, want to, I wanted to ask you to, well, I mean, I'll turn it over to you to set up your argument um, about realism and the Ukraine war. And I mean, obviously, it's most associated with John G. Mersheimer and I'm the University of Chicago professor. And I'm sure most of our listeners have encountered him already by this point.
0: Uh, yeah, thank you. For, that's a, You really know your, your stuff. So I'm not going to pretend like I really know much, know a lot of depth in depth. Uh,
2: it's okay. The Alex and George don't. So
1: feel, <laughs> feel free to patronize them all you like. I have a degree in the subject anyway.
0: Wow. Okay. I, I, I mean, I was, uh, the realists were right. It was just sort of like a punchy line that was, I was applying to one point, but I do think like, I do think it, 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 it um, the headline, um, holds, uh, the, the point that I was making in the article was that, um, that, um the realists were right about one thing uh, which was that it was a bad idea in the beginning of the war to get ukraine's hopes up to this kind of ridiculous degree to engage in this sort of mythmaking that we could as in the west could not ever possibly fulfill um because we'd set the set their sights so high uh, that they could kind of couldn't help but fail, you know, the higher, you know, you go, the, the further you have to fall. And so what, what I was, it was actually kind of an article. It was about the, the, you know, the shape, the changing uh, media discourses about the war. Um, and uh, I, I started with the, you know, the first months of the war, we were kind of getting this uh, David and Goliath um, idea set up and, um, and uh, by, you know, the summer, um, this kind of much high overhyped counteroffensive that Ukraine was supposed to engage in, engage in and, uh, you know, really failed to produce any meaningful results. I mean, Russia and Ukraine are more or less locked in a stalemate, which, you know, you might say Ukraine is a far like weaker you know country, far less heavily. Uh, yeah, far, far um, weaker opponent or the stronger opponent has done very, very well in some ways you can say that but this counter has failed I mean there's everybody has kind of acknowledged that and um, this is a real problem because the rainy season is about to start and they're not going to be able to make too much more um, make many more gains uh, and so you had this sort of um, you had this sort of ecstatic uh, sense of like unprecedented Western unity. And this is like the fight for you know, democracy itself and the West itself. And, uh, and we're going to be with you all the way, a hundred percent. And of course, like our really are in terms of furnishing arms, in terms of being able to say, offer NATO membership even the timelines, of NATO, NATO membership, none of that has really been off. I mean, not, it hasn't been offered in the way that it was kind of packaged in the beginning. Um, and so now, I mean, everybody's been quite, uh, um, you know, distracted by what's happening in the least, but, you know, as of the time of the articles publication, uh, this you know, beginning of the fall, um, you know, Ukraine was in a pretty like bad space and like, this was, nobody was, you know, pretending otherwise anymore. Well, okay. There were a small number of, you know, the diehard, uh, types who were always saying, you know, Ukraine's about to you know, there's going to be a reset of the counteroffensive and they're still going to be able to turn it around. But, uh, all of this sort of assessments from, from that I read that were kind of, uh, people who, who were decent, um, and it seemed impartial, uh, said that, you know, that they were doing pretty poorly. And so, um, you know, and what do you do? Like, what is the, what, what do you do in that case? Like you're, you're basically at this point, you know, um, in a way, throwing money down a black hole. And I, I know that's a very, you know, something that's going to provoke a lot of people um, if you say that. But yes, yeah, so that was kind of what the article was about. It wasn't so, I wasn't really like exploring the realist tradition. I would love to do that at, at some other time. But um, I would just kind of point to this uh, one claim they made in the beginning uh, about sort of the, the perils of setting, you know, of getting Ukraine's hopes up so high. Uh, because we weren't ever going to be able to, um, you know, fulfill what we said we would.
3: So, what would the what would the kind of the realist? So you sort of said, you know, this kind of David and Goliath like battle was was constructed almost morally by, or that's the way you know the West was constructing it. So does the realist come in and say, because I'm I'm speaking as somebody who has no idea about uh, international politics, as Phil? Um, explained previously. So, is, would the realists come in and say, "Well, actually, in David versus Goliath, like Goliath is going to win 99 times out of 100. So, you need to act realistically if you're in this uh, David position, and not listen to the Western so-called allies who are who are goading you on to kind of uh, uh to unrealistic uh aims within this battle." I'm trying. I don't know. I'm trying to th- trying to throw. Let's you-
0: ask one of the IR uh, specialists here. <laughs>
1: They need a bigger slingshot, you know, it's like, uh, that's what they're going to give you a big, a bigger slingshot, but not a big enough slingshot. And I think that's where Ukraine is kind of stuck, actually.
2: I'm curious, Lily, how much, um, you know, did you, did you get like the moral opprobrium cast on you simply for um, calling into question, well, for defending realism um, as a kind of political understanding and also simply for questioning the counteroffensive?
0: I, I've never gotten such pushback for anything and I mean I cover the Balkans so I kind of was <laughs> I expected like uh, I didn't ever expect it to be worse than I've gotten here uh, you know it was it was shocking um, you know it was 10 days of just you know NAFO trolls and like you know CIA clandestine service guys tell you know basically to be like, <laughs> like very cryptic kind of like disturbing messages or um He deleted afterwards. It's good you got the screenshot. Yeah. I mean, it's the best compliment I could ever get. He said, um, I, I I tweeted, uh, this is my first piece for the new statesman and, and this CIA clandestine services guy or former, uh, with a quarter of a million followers said it should be your last right I imagined him saying it in that voice (laughs) it's not really what he is but um yeah so I was like wow that's really cool but um yeah I got it it was the pushback was insane they basically couldn't use social media for 10 days because it was like just unusable
3: what was that guy's name again
0: john cypher which is like such a cia <laughs> name you know like it's that's great that's the
3: best bit of that story it's either his real name or it's a it's a very good uh good name.
2: maybe it's his cover name the cia decided like they'd put him as a deep cover guy and give him the name john cypher so that no one would work out who he was when he was a secret agent doing all yeah. of his secret agent things well
1: that's it hide in plain sight yeah. yeah it works
2: yeah, the NAFO the NAFO crowd is something else. Um, they really are. Anyway, for so... those for those
1: who aren't familiar, it stands for North Atlantic Fellas Organization, um, which yeah. which should give you an inkling to how serious it is. Um, but but no, actually, it is it is deadly serious. Um, emphasis on deadly, and yet it's also very very silly, which I think is very of our times, of the moment um, to be. Kind of-
2: and certainly a lot of it is bots, I imagine, and kind of various information, warfare nonsense cooked up by people who think they're very smart. That's um, interesting to hear you say it anyway, because as I was specifically curious on that question of how it compared to, you know, the usual kind of clouds of insanity online that go around Balkan topics.
0: So It was un- incomparable. I mean, this was the most insane uh, thing I've ever seen in my life. I've never gotten this kind of... Uh... I've never been like uh, torn to shreds as much. Thankfully I kind of know how to deal with it now, which is I just log off because there's no, I mean, if I, I'm not going to sit there and argue with people like for thousands of people. So.
2: Yeah, no, indeed. Um, I guess this takes us to a most recent piece. Um, I'm not sure if it's exactly, uh, your most recent piece cause you've written so many recently, but, um, one which is kind of, um, which certainly got our, um, attention, and we were interested to hear more about it, was you saying about how, um, and particularly because it's so crunchy, and so it's this question of the um, relations between Poland and Ukraine as mediated by the dispute over grain exports, and how you say essentially kind of the future of European politics hinges on this clash between Ukraine and Poland. Um, And this is again for the New Statesman. I was wondering if you could uh, explain to us The kind of the premise of the piece um what's happening with the grain with grain between poland and ukraine and why the dispute is so important
0: yeah um just some kind of background to the kind of polish ukrainian relationship since the invasion of ukraine you know poland was uh ukraine's greatest champion you know in the eu and in nato and they pushed hard for uh ukraine to get a um a timeline for membership to NATO. Of course, that didn't come to be at the Vilnius summit this summer. Uh, You know, Ukraine, sorry, Poland took in, and I think the largest number of refugees of any country in Europe. Uh, They were really, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with, with Ukraine and were like a very steadfast, you know, kind of friend. Um, But while this is all going on, um, there was some kind of like trouble brewing. And this is mostly outside of the view of, People who don't really like care about like grain politics and you know Central and Eastern Europe, but um, so you know the, when the Black Sea route um, for exporting like uh, Ukrainian grain was like blocked or you know could not be used because of the war, the EU created these solidarity lanes that created like an alternative uh, pathway for grain from Ukraine's the breadbasket of Ukraine to to make it to the EU and beyond. Uh, so what this meant uh, is that um, Poland was one of the, these these tracks so um, but this um, in, in trying to get grain from through through Poland they, they met uh, there was were a lot of challenges because um, basically from what I understand the railroad track gauge is different yeah, there's an EU standard and Ukraine uses a different uh, railroad track. Uh, gauge so there was a like a glut of grain there was a grain piling up in, in in poland this put uh local farmers uh polish farmers in a very very bad position many of them were forced to the brink of bankruptcy uh and um so this created like a lot of tension between polish poland and ukraine there when Zelensky visited warsaw earlier this year you know Polish farmers uh, threatened to protest. They they threw eggs at the agricultural minister. So this was becoming a real political issue domestically in in Poland uh, ahead of the elections, which, of course, were uh, last weekend. Um, And so the ruling kind of right wing populist party law and justice uh, sort of uh, one month ahead of the um, uh, election kind of started to make a bigger public deal out of this and this kind of we all kind of became aware of it. Um, Zelensky uh, made an inflammatory comment at the UN uh, saying that there were some countries insinuating Poland, some countries that like, you know, feign solidarity, but are actually aligned with Russia um, because Poland had, um, uh issued a temporary d- decided to extend a temper a ban on Ukrainian grain uh passing through the country because of this economic crisis that was created as, as a result uh and so this kind of forced this like provoked you know a, a string of sort of like a chain reaction. You know, Poland came out and said we're not going to arm you anymore. Uh, that lasted for a little bit. I think it has been reversed since um, uh, there was, you know, very harsh words spoken. And then, of course, at the same time, you have the Canadian Parliament. Um, around the same time, you had this horrible catastrophe in the Canadian Parliament where a Ukrainian. You know, often SS veteran, is like receives a standing ovation, and for Poland, that's a very emotional and very you know, painful uh, thing because they were victims of like Ukrainian nationalists. So it really kind of forced into view of you know public view this sort of um, some of the fissures that have been growing for a while, um, and so, but the reason why it has meaning you know, for Europe is that you know, at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, you know, Poland, not only was Ukraine's best friend, but it was sort of, there was talk of this, like the, the center of power in Europe shifting from the sort of Germany and France who are seen as sort of, who were seen at least in the, in the this first months as being very weak uh, and responding in a kind of uh, insufficient way to the Russian threat um, and Poland and, you know, Central and Eastern Europe were like, you know, Europe's new conscience. They knew what Russia was really like, and they they mm. told everybody. And we didn't listen well and you know well enough. Uh, and so there was all this talk about, you know, um, uh, sort of Poland becoming like the new kind of like moral force within NATO, within the EU. Yeah. And they got a lot of political capital for this. And they kind of had a sense, there was a kind of polar sense of uh, superiority. Um, so, you know, of course, if you have this public feud with Ukraine and, and, you know, you're drawing on history and also on economic, you have an economic crisis, there's that, that kind of new role uh, as like, you know, this, uh, the new center of power in Europe is imperiled because, you know, your claim to, you know, superiority was your, you know, standing behind Ukraine as a, as a, so the, the, that was kind of my, my take on it. You know, there was an election last weekend in Poland, apparently the opposition won. So I can't really, you know, I haven't, I've been completely uh, watching the Midi- Midi- uh, Middle East and I haven't really um, revisited Poland too much, but that, that, that's basically uh, the gist of the article.
2: I mean, listening to you, it reminds me, um, I mean, it reminds me of another kind of odd dimension of the whole Ukraine conflict, which is just how bad Ukrainian diplomacy is. Yes. I mean, it still strikes me as extraordinary that Zelensky would, um, you know, humiliate and embarrass Poland. In front of the United Nations at that particular point in that way, you know, I mean, I understand there was a dispute and Ukrainian interests were at stake, but to to be so provocative with regards to a you know, a neighbouring country that has been so supportive, there's just kind of um, there've been a few, you know, a few things like that where you think um, Ukrainian kind of uh, suggests a kind of um, a kind of a lackadaisical diplomacy that can only you know, can only speak to how Ukrainian the Ukrainian state has been some come so accustomed to kind of Western largesse and international um support that they don't really have a, you know, they're kind of they're kind of almost oblivious to um how to perhaps keep on board, you know, smaller kind of smaller countries or how to um continue to kind of um keep them on side, you know? Anyway. Um, so, I mean, I think the whole thing, the whole thing about the, um, the breakdown, you know, the breakdown of the kind of, uh, Western unity behind, behind Ukraine and the way in which it's played out as a result of grain is fascinating, not least because it ties into so much to do with the war and the blockade of the black sea and what have you. Um, but how, so I wanted just to push you on the the other aspect of the, of the article, how does the future of Europe hinge on it? Is it so?
0: Just if you could explain that to our listeners, um, the, it was the point that I was making about Poland. Oh, what some like people observing who observe European politics were imagining that Poland could be the new center of gravity in Europe, as you know, to, to kind of um, to, to as as an alternative to like the weak, Germ- a weak Germany and a, a dithering Germany that could, was indecisive about. Uh, sending arms to Ukraine. It was this this idea that uh, Poland was going to be the new uh, the new say center of power of Europe, and that is now I think with the Polish government's response, I, I, I think that. You're completely right. That Ukrainian diplomacy has been very lacking and kind of like surprisingly amateurish in some ways. But of course, the, the, the Polish government can also be kind of unpredictable and unprofessional. Um, yeah. And so their response kind of undermined the claim, the kind of the claim to moral superiority that Poland kind yeah. of been riding on.
2: Do you see? So I mean, would you go as far as to say the kind of the claims of Poland as a new great power are overblown?
0: Um, I, you know, it's actually a good question. I think that uh, the we'll have to see what happens with the, this ele- that elections are have just passed last weekend. So I think it's we'll, we'll see if the opposition is able to kind of cobble together a uh, a uh, majority. It looks like they're going to be able to do that. So, um, but uh, I think that you know, it, it kind of depends. I mean, it, it's, it's this Law and Justice Party has been in power for years and had a very kind of uh, particular um, uh, antagonistic relationship with some of the neighbors, including Germany. Um, and we'll see how how this new government, if, they're, if it's formed, um, is able to sort of uh, is able to kind of carve out an, a, a more kind of leading role for Poland. I mean it's it's a really important question because uh you know Germany is in a technical recession um kind of looking weak um and many too many um so I I, I don't know I, I can't help but think that some of these kinds of things, you know, this idea that Poland's going to be the new center of gravity in Europe, I, I don't know, I, it does seem a little bit overblown to me, if I'm to be honest. But um, but again, we'll have to see what this new sort of, I guess, more kind of liberal, uh, more more kind of a Brussels-friendly um, opposition take, or, or government that is likely to take power, from what I understand, um, looks like and how, they're, how, they're, how they operate.
2: So you've mentioned um, you mentioned your attention has been fixed on the Middle East recently for understandable reasons. Um, could you perhaps, if we close, if we close up, if we wrap up, if you could maybe tell us um, what you're working on at the moment or what you're going to be working on next to give us a preview?
0: Yeah. What, let's see. What am I working on right now? I just finished something today. Uh, yeah. I've been I've been writing about sort of the e like the the EU's response to all these crises that have been uh, plaguing the the globe, uh, Middle East, Ukraine, mostly um, those two, uh, and kind of this search for an e, a geopolitical Europe, kind of a new a new European kind of foreign policy orientation that um, has is supposedly uh, less concerned with a sort of like. Uh, liberal feel good like human rights stuff where and 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 is where europe has uh, learned how to speak the language of power as some as the european council on foreign relations put it Mm. Uh, so this idea that europe but, but at the same time um uh while it is adopting this more kind of confrontational hawkish language and rhetoric it has never been more subsumed and subordinate to the united states uh, so you have this sort of um, this is all the EU is all all bark and no bite. And they're and they're increasingly, you know, taking the U.S. line on pretty much everything. And again, we talked about this earlier as a concerned, like atlanticism and NATO enlargement. Uh, but so I kind of was talking to, I, I was also. Uh, um, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's the gist of it um, and sort of how this new geopolitical Europe. Uh, has you know been struggling to sort of emerge on the global stage, and you know the the kind of disunity that we saw in the initial days of the um, the new conflict in the Middle East, and um, and kind of yeah assessing like what you know what what a a geopolitical Europe really means, and if you're um, so that, that that that's what I've been working on. Does hmm. the wonder- piece of a home? Yes, it is for yes, it's for the New Statesman.
2: Okay, great. Um, so we can uh, look out for it. yes, yeah,
1: i wonder I wonder if uh, speaking the language of power means talking less ideological b s. um but i uh, I'm not holding my breath on that just yet. But anyway, um, thank you very much, Lily. This has been fascinating. Um, and I think really, I think the combination of what's going on in the Middle East and then this that we've talked about today illustrates, the turbulence of international affairs, how things are being pulled out of place and being pulled in various different directions simultaneously, accelerating pretty quickly. I mean, it, it's good that we have a podcast um, on global politics to uh, to discuss this on, because um, there's a lot of stuff to, to figure out. Um, anyway, thank you for, uh, for enlightening us.
0: Thank Cheers, you guys Lily. so much. It was great as always. Thank you. Thank you so much for
2: coming on Lily. And um, yeah, we look forward to look forward to reading the piece on geopolitical Europe. And to having you on again as soon as we can.
0: Thank yeah. you, thank
1: you I love that. Uh, listeners, we uh, look forward to hearing what you um, have made of this. If you have any feelings on uh, neutrality, you know, speak up, make your stand. Uh, don't just sit there. Um, but that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye bye.